You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and we are back with our second week discussing Mysterious Case of the Alpton Angels by Janice Hallett, chapters three to five. Hope you enjoyed the little detour we had with Ben Hobson last week on the show. It was good fun getting to kind of compare some of the similarly complex structural ideas going on between those texts and Herds. Mm. We now return to the anarchy of notes and research that Mm. is Alberton Angels. I thought you were going to say the notes and research that is your notepad. (laughs) I assume that you have... One of those cork boards with the poster notes and the Ugh. and the lines connecting characters to events to timelines, because uh, we're we're really in the thick of it. We're really examining you know three different time periods in some great detail. I'm really curious to see what you make of it all. There is obviously the narrative that we're trying to unravel in the historical case of the Alperton Angels, and that's now mm. established to be going back further in time. We know that it's sort of traces back to stuff going on in the 1990s mm-hmm. to the the eternal holly yes yeah but the more pressing narrative the actual like evolving narrative is primarily of amanda's dealings with oliver mm. and amanda's dealings with the character that was introduced to us previously of mr blue yeah i i think that something that i do enjoy about the the sort of tension in this novel is how where we always feel like Amanda is in in danger right whether it's from the literal antichrist or the the dark forces or whatever's you know going on physically in this case yeah or Oliver whose messages are becoming increasingly feverish uh in pitch uh-huh. you know they're becoming more and more unhinged as she's closing in on the truth she's getting closer and closer to whatever retribution that she is going to receive for her sins, right? Well, it's also really interesting because previously all of the characters that had been dying in the present tense, like Mark Dunning, Jonathan Childs, and Gray Graham, Mm. were all people that had been established to be on the scene of the case. But David Polneth is now dead, Mm -hmm. and he was never at any point established to be near the scene so mm. clearly these threats are coming more specifically for amanda now yeah i think it's really fun um oliver thinks that this retribution is coming for him but it's just because he's associated with amanda it seems yeah but oliver kind of feels like it's because he's got these supernatural powers or this uh this attunement to the other side or whatever which is really fun like i really enjoy the way that we're examining how all these things that Oliver and Amanda weren't directly related to Mm. having a a physical presence. All the little bits of information that don't quite line up, they're all contributing to the hysteria of Oliver Menzies. I also find it really interesting how we then compare that to the discussions with Mr. Blue, Mm. where there was the whole one-sided show up to this place, oh, I wasn't there, come back to your apartment, I broke in while you were gone. Yeah. But then- we have this moment towards the end of chapter five where Amanda meets up with someone and says, oh, it's you. Mm -hmm. And it's then revealed to us right at the end that she's talking with Mary Claire, who was one of the police officers identified in a previous transcript as being on the scene of the case uh, and acting very suspiciously back when the kind of ritual suicide took place. Yeah. And I mean, even the the circumstances of this this meeting are suspicious. I'd I'd be curious to see if you... Like if you believe that all of what you've just said is is entirely true, because the way that that we kind of meet up with with Mary Claire is that 
Jonah, the the monk at the monastery, like hands her a piece of paper with with Mary Claire's number on it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, in a moment of sleight of hand, where I guess uh, Amanda either like pretends to stumble or does just happen to stumble near Jonah, like it has a very strangely theatrical quality to it. Yeah, that kind of scene looking back on it, because because yeah, I, I guess there is a question of how much of even the the truth the quote unquote truth of what we're being told of like the objective notes of of Ellie Cooper who gets a, a much more vocal role in this stretch of, cap- of chapters I might add which I, which I really enjoy how much of that can be trusted I guess the curious thing there is not so much whether you trust it so much as if you feel threatened by it <clears throat> fair enough because Oliver says a lot of stuff that is fabricatable and the only thing that feels threatening is his chance of ending up in a mental institution <laughs> you don't really get the sense that he is going to do much other than continue publishing stories before he's supposed to, which is what he does at the opening of chapter four. He like leaks it to a tabloid, uh, a bunch of the research that they've done so Mm. far. Yeah. He's got a bit of an impotent rage thing going on. There's like, there's, there's not really any danger there other than the bottom line of the publications that they're working on. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he's, he's kind of an all talk, no no acting kind of character, uh, which is, which is really fun. Although I did want to drag things back a bit to um to to Ellie because she f- does feel threatened uh, by a lot of what's going on. She spends a lot of time trying to warn Mand. Um, you know when she when she goes to meet Mister Blue twice, apparently uh, she's the person that Mand like leaves her number with. She says, you know, if I'm missing after an hour, I want you to call someone and like let them know that I've gone missing. Amanda kind of ignores the, the risk, whereas Ellie wants to to pull her back from the edge, so to speak. And I don't know. I think that that relationship is really human, and I think it really does elevate the the sort of investigation by Amanda to be a bit more than just we're going to find out all the secrets. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, we we also have all of these little tidbits about what Amanda's like past is you know when Mm. at the end of chapter two when ellie was transcribing the thing with her aunt yeah and she's like oh god i i heard this whole thing i'm so sorry man uh we have this other bit where oliver and amanda are out and amanda like very pointedly makes a comment about how she can't see something in one eye yes yes and i don't know what that is but to me that definitely read as like Oliver had something to do with that, mm. even though most of chapter one and two was definitely establishing Amanda as a like pretty terrible person. You can see the building blocks starting to come together in how she is still human behind all of this very robotic doing of her job that she's been following the entire story. Well, a lot of it is very performative, right? Like yeah. the the role that she's in. She wanted to to you know, be in journalism, but obviously the job that she has now is not, I think, quite how she saw herself kind of ending up. Um, and she clearly does have, you know, a heart in there. And again, I think that Ellie gives us that perspective to see that people do care about her. Well, yeah, and, and she also gets along really well with other authors working in her space who she's been texting the entire time along. And they're not like mm-hmm. deep relationships that we get to see no. the full fundamentals of, but you can tell that behind the getting done of the job, she is still a person. Yeah, yeah. Well, like these are all people that they understand her because they're in the same job. They understand, you know, what's what's required to do the job, right? Like, yeah. And I mean, th- this is- 
a, a big discussion around like, you know, crunch and uh, requirements of your workspace, whether people require you to like go into office or not. Like, yeah, I mean, media ethics as well. Media ethics. Yeah. Sorry. I, 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 I don't know. I'm not 100% prepared for this sort of conversation, but like every industry has their uh, problems. And I think that Amanda is doing the best with the hand that she's dealt with. And we can see by the way that she works with the people around her, that she is, she's doing her best and everyone else is doing their best. And we could only hope that, you know, even if she's in a, uh, and you know, doing some not so great things and reporting on some weird stuff, she's going to do the best she can as a human. Yeah. You know, a human who is flawed. I I think the other bit of the narrative that I wanted to talk about before we move on to the mystery section, Herds, is Mm. the other texts, like Jess Adesina's Mm. book uh, and Mark Dunning's book Mm -hmm. and Clive Batham's script Mm -hmm. all start to get fleshed out in really interesting ways. They take up a lot more of the page. The biggest revelation that we get from Clive's (laughs) divine is this scene of Gabriel stealing a baby and and barging in on a character called Ashley, who we've kind of only just been introduced to, and Holly, and being like, here, this is your baby now. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) Sex was too difficult. (laughs) Sex sex would take too long, I think. (laughs) I'm not going to confirm or deny anything about what you just said, but that is definitely uh, an interpretation of the scene. Is that an interpretation of the scene? Isn't that just what happens? I'd love love to know about that. Uh, I'd also love to know where and who Ashley is, which is a whole other thing that we're going to get into because the name of the next chapter is In Search of Ashley. So So indeed. (laughs) It's going to be great. It's going to be great. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Coming up at the back of the show, it's the mystery section where I have to solve all these puzzles. But right now, we're going to hop over and talk to new release crime author Ashley Collagian Blunt. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and we are joined today by Ashley Collagian Blunt. She's the author of the memoir How to Be Australian and a Thriller, My Name is Revenge. She's the co-host of James and Ashley Stay at Home with James Mackenzie Watson, a podcast about writing, creativity, and health. And we speak to her today, hours before the Sydney launch of her recently published novel, Dark Mode. <laughs> Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am wearing sequins in case you're wondering. It is so exciting. We were talking with you just before Danuka's Taken launch, uh, which was a lot of fun. And now we get to flip the script and have your own book launch. Same spot. Different cake. Different cake. <laughs> what, what kind of cake? I need to know. It's dark chocolate, of course. Ooh, <laughs> it has to su- be. The superior cake. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Oof. All right. Well, Herds isn't getting invited to Danuka's birthday party. Wow. I see how it is. So I guess let's get into the book. It was really interesting to me how you framed Reagan's separation from the internet with her financial issues and the idea that biz- any business worth its salt must be online. Do you think Voodoo Lily could have succeeded if Reagan had the space to deal with her trauma in other ways? Ooh, I I mean, it was interesting because I was talking to someone else who had a small business and she said to me, 2017 was the year that I got on Instagram for my business and it made a big difference. And so that's, that's, you know, one of, one of several reasons this book is set in 2017 is I felt like it was the last year where you could sort of not have that much of an internet presence and not be considered that strange like that was the year my husband got a smartphone 
So up to that, he had just had, you know, one of those regular old cell phones uh-huh. that like made calls and was horrendous to text on. So I, I think, I think, it, I think if Voodoo Lily had been on a main street, she might have had a better chance. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think I, I think she. She needed she needed to get online at that time. It's interesting that you say that because in hindsight, like I got this smartphone in 2016 okay. and it was a jump from a 2003 Nokia 6610. Wow. <laughs> so there are a lot of moments reading Reagan's story. I'm like, yeah, I could I could kind of kind of relate to that a little bit. But it is it is so fascinating that like there there is, I guess, in your mind, that tipping point where the the, the last kind of viable point where everyone made the switch to this is the smartphone world now. Yeah, I don't know anyone who doesn't have a smartphone other, other than, you know, Below the age of seventy, I should qualify. Yeah. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, do you know anyone who doesn't have a smartphone? I I certainly don't. I yeah. mean, e- even my my grandparents, rest their souls, had smartphones before before they went on. So yeah, I mean, my father. I was thinking the one exception is my father in law, but he does have an iPad, which he refers to as the little computer. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so uh, that still counts, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that that first murder it it does take place in an alleyway that's you know just off the beaten path of the Sydney mainways. It feels to me like a parallel to the to the dark web. Um, they're both systems that are easy to access on the surface, but there will always be hideaways and dark shadows to lurk in. Um, what do you think drives Reagan and, by extension, your readers to take a peek down those less trodden side paths? Oh, I love I love that comparison. That's fantastic. Well, and that was so that murder on in the first chapter is a recreation of the Black Dahlia murder, mm. which happened in the U.S. in 1947. And of course, in 1947, that killer did not have to deal with things like security cameras. The woman, Elizabeth Short, she was murdered somewhere and she was her body was brought to this suburban neighborhood where she was left in a lot, like an empty lot, and very specifically posed, which I know in fiction and in movies, you know, it seems like that happens all the time with bodies, but in real life actually is exceptionally rare. It's like 1% of murders, uh, the victims end up being posed Mm. for uh, whoever discovers them. And uh, the Black Dahlia was one of those. Yeah, because I think it's also a really interesting way that we connect with like the incentives of everyone in the cast where obviously we have characters like the police. Lomsky has very clear incentives. There's no ambiguity <laughs> there. But then we get to characters like Min, who is a true crime author, and you're like, are you helping me because you want this to be a story? And there's a lot of ambiguity there. We have, um, you know, Terry, which is Reagan's stepfather, stepfather who comes off so painfully uncomfortable but you also get the sense that he's just trying to put on a good show for his for his wife and there's all yeah like the the game of incentives that you play is one of the most enticing things about the way that you use this really tight cast to me and i wanted to come back to the first question that i asked and the idea that the bank is sort of her main incentive to like break out of this bubble that she's been in without the internet for so long talk to me about why that was the incentive you chose to push her with ah well i mean if you're running a small business, like you've got to have revenue, right? Like the, you've you've got you've got bills, you've got to pay, you've got overheads. Even when you have no staff, like Reagan dreams of the day that she can get someone to work weekends for her because yeah. she's worked every weekend for the past three years effectively. But she, you know, she's she's running her own small business and she t- took out a loan to buy that business, uh, believing that she could keep up the sales that the previous uh, owners had. 
and she's it's just not working for her. And so, the, you know, the financial incentive, everything always comes down to money, right? Yeah. Like, I guess it's interesting to me that you answer the question in that way because it sounds like Reagan was inseparable to you from this idea of the small business flower shop owner. Talk to me about the genesis of that character idea. Ah, well, my mother works for a uh, seed a seed company, actually, a gardening mm-hmm. company. And so that was... When I was growing up, we would go to the garden centers in the summer. I would work with my mom. And it was one of those things where as a kid, I was just like, oh, I, <laughs> I don't want to spend my day counting packages of seeds, which is what we did. We counted all the all the different varieties and each variety and marked them on a sheet. And Not the individual seeds, I hope. No, that the- <laughs> seems like that seems like a big task. Oh, no, no. <laughs> just, no, just every single packet of okay, them, okay. which was thousands of packets. Mm-hmm. Much more manageable. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. We may as well have been getting the flex. Um, and so I think that having that in my background, my mom still works for that company. Just, I guess you spend a lot of time in garden centers and there's such particular places, right? Mm. Like, and people who garden are so passionate about it. Like people who are good at gardening, it's like a whole separate world. Yeah. And so I think, I, I think this was me trying to step into my mom's world because I'm not a gardener. I don't have a garden. Uh-huh. My, my few houseplants are always kind of dying. Like they're always like about to die on mm-hmm, me. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. I guess the thing that I wanted to close on just talking about like Reagan as a character to you, who is someone that has come into this story with like so much trauma and I don't want to talk about the way that the book ends. I, there's there's so much to her journey, but do you feel with the journey that she's went on that she came out of this experience better than she started it emotionally? Was this healing for her? Oh, that is such a good question. She has taken one important thing from this journey. And I really tried to show that in the last lines of the book. She took one really, really important thing that she needs and she didn't have it before. I mean, all emotional thinking about poor Reagan at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, and I think that thing is the thing that's going to get her through. That that thing, to me, was the thing she needed more than anything else. Yeah. And it's it. She is going to have a very very hard time, but it's going to carry her through. And and she's not the only person who needs her to have that thing. Part of me, I, I I really wonder if she'll use the internet yeah. after this. I think she will, because I think she'll have to. Like, I can't imagine her or anyone her age in, in 2023 not right. using the internet. I mean, yeah. I mean, to, to drag it back to my stupid smartphone sitting on the desk in front of me again. <laughs> like, I have thought of switching back from this phone so many times, but every time I'm like, well, but this is on it, and I have to replace this, and I have to replace this, and I have to replace this, and I have to replace this. And it really is that sense that you get with Reagan at the end, where she's like, she's gained something and has a thousand thousand more burdens that have been added to it but that that piece which we i've the piece yes the um, thing the thing um is is like a really interesting takeaway in the lens of everything that the book covers and i really appreciated that kind of concluding note oh good oh i'm so glad i'm so glad that that landed for you Alrighty. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader and a massive congratulations on the release of Dark Mode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. You guys are awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. (laughs) This is Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We will be back with more weird cult nonsense in just a second. Praise Satan. (laughs) Stick around. More to come. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. We are discussing Janice Hallett's mysterious case of the Alperton Angels, chapters three to five. I am in the hot seat. Herds has challenged me Uh to solve 
the many mysteries. Everything. You have to solve everything today. I need you to tell me who Ashley is. I need you to tell me what happened the night of the cult massacre. I need you to know where the fourth body came from. If there is, a, if it is a fourth body, look, I need you to tell me the answers to everything right now, right this second. So, uh, Herds, you already know a little bit of this because I was messaging you my <laughs> thoughts as they I happened. know, I know but you Let's were. start with Ashley. Okay. Who's Ashley? Because Ashley <laughs> is bizarre. She's introduced, like, almost out of nowhere in yes. these other texts that we were talking about. She's in Jess's, she's in Clive's, and they're sort of an analogous character in Mark's. Mm, okay. It, it is obviously implied that by not only two of these characters having the same name, but her appearing in all three, even though she hasn't been anywhere else in the story, that she is very relevant somehow. Maybe, can I just tell you, maybe she is the true angel floating between the stories, between the pages. Well, the great angel of this novel. Here's the curious thought to me, is that- Uh-oh, that she is an angel? We have this entire thing that the Mystery Club introduces us to of stuff with the angels going back to the 1990s. Mm, It's true. Which I think means Ashley was probably like a previous iteration of whatever Peter Duffy slash Gabriel's plan was. Okay, okay. I like it. I was trying to think about, based on Ashley's roles in the two narratives, Jess's and Clive's, who she's most likely to be in our already introduced cast. Mm. Like she, she can't be Amanda. I just, Amanda's going to die. That's, <laughs> that's her, that's her fate. You don't think that Ashley is Amanda no. and Amanda is eternal. She's the real angel. Ellie is too young. Mm. Yeah. All of the publishers, we don't really know anything about them. And they're also like too hungry for the story. The only person who has been like helpful and resistant that isn't Mary Claire is Sonia Brown. Okay. Who's like trying to stop Amanda from finding the baby, but still is very sensitive and tries to do well by her, even though she's like blackmailing her. Mm. So I think that blackmail is also a parallel, presumably to how Ashley was kind of held in potentially as Holly Mark one in the 1990s. And I think that Sonia Brown is Ashley. Okay. Cool. So, wait, so what was the previous scheme then? Great question. Really, <laughs> genuinely fantastic okay. question. Okay. Uh, my my Fair best enough. my best guess is that Gabriel is using kids to cover for his petty crimes, mm. and you know, in the two thousand and three version of events, he's he's stolen a baby. That's what we see in Clive's script, mm-hmm. and he's presumably blackmailing those babies' parents. And but like keeping the baby with these two teenagers so that it's sort of incognito, like oh the the, mm. the two kids have a kid, uh, how cute, Lo- young love. Let's let them yeah, be. let's let them live their life in the, the dingy flat or whatever. Yeah. So I guess what what role does does Ashley play in the the, the night of the like the cult massacre? Is 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 she the one that? you know, stabbed everybody and made it look like they killed themselves? No. Is that- how, how is she, No. What is, what is her, like, role then? I reckon that she was somehow involved in the entire, like, paperwork mix-up at the hospital and with social services. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. Because yeah. we, we know that Sonia's ended up in social work and was working with Amanda Bailey when she was younger. So she has to have been involved in social services and the hospital system in some ways. So- presumably 
whatever sting operation was going on the night of the Alperton Angels suicide, uh, she was involved in like trying to get the kids out of the mess. So I guess, I guess my next question is there's a couple of bodies that I, I feel like I've mentioned, but you haven't really elucidated your opinion on. Um, there, there are f- four bodies found at the scene, one of which is Gabriel, who apparently also is alive now. Yeah. I'd love to know what's going with those bodies. Um, and also Harper to Singh, who is in the news portrayed as a penniless lowlife who was just waiting to get killed by a cult. But in actuality, it was like a prestigious student with a family with a lot of money. Like, yeah. What, what's going on with those, all those presumably dead people? I'm just going to kind of take the book at its word with Harry Singh, which is that mm. it seems as though Harry Singh was an undercover cop working on a drug sting and got killed. Mm. And then what's his name? Christopher Shank? Shanky. Shanky. Yeah. Shanky. That's right. Yeah. Christopher <laughs> Shanky was probably the one that killed him. And then the cops offed Christopher Shank as revenge and planted his body with the angels to cover for their misconduct, to put it lightly. So how, how does that tie in with this uh, sting operation that you're like proposing here? I guess this is all like one big meticulously planned thing where we're like, no, I, think, I don't know, we're, we're going we're gonna to kill, kill these cultists and then- Well, I, I think um, Grey Graham showing up on the scene, like they, they talk about, oh, he's always managing to get there before anyone else does. And surely it's because he's listening to police radio. And if you were planning a big sting operation, why would you call it out on main radio? And why was it two beat cops that showed up to find the scene of the crime? So I reckon two things happening at once forced the sting operation into a bit of a mess. I think that's all very, very, very cohesive and makes a lot of sense to me. As much as, you know, your word goes against the word of God (laughs) makes any sense, but whatever. (laughs) I guess the other thing I wanted to kind of approach is you reckon that this is all some kind of sting operation that didn't involve normal cops or whatever. Can you walk me through a bit why this this operation is happening in the first place? What happens to the baby? Like, how does that kind of play out? Well, it's quite simple, Ben. It's because yes. the, the baby was not born of the angels. The baby was, as was in Clive's manuscript, divine. The baby was stolen. Mm. And the question is, who was the baby stolen from? It's a great question. And one of the things that keeps happening in this story is that it turns out that random insignificant side characters were actually either quite wealthy or quite well-connected or ex-special forces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when I was saying last week that I was hoping that Ellie would be the baby and discover it, you know, that had been her, her life secret all along. We can still believe in that dream. (laughs) I still thought that the baby was actually Holly's, Mm. but suddenly it all makes a lot more sense that the special forces would get involved if, say, for example, a police officer who for some reason doesn't know nearly as many cops as other cops think, Mm. but knows a lot of special forces people, uh, had his baby stolen and got all of his special forces buddies together to get his baby back. Can you just name the cop for us so that we can have it on record? (laughs) Now, Ben, (laughs) if you were going to name a police officer in a story... Yeah. Someone, someone who had caused uh, chaos. Just this really... is like the most ironic name. Yeah, I'd call him like Bobby Doogood. Bobby um. Doogood. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna go Bobby with Cops. Donald Makepeace. Uh, that's a silly name. That's a pretty silly name. 
So anyway, uh, Donald Makepeace. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Has made a mess. Has he really? He's he's gotten he's gotten his his buddies from MI5, MI6 and MI however <laughs> high <whatever>. it goes. <laughs> uh yeah. to try and get his baby back from this group of cultists who are blackmailing him. <sighs> uh and unfortunately somebody called the regular cops before they were done with it. All right, well, I f- I feel like we've uh discussed this novel enough <laughs> I, I, th- I yeah look I really enjoy listening to you kind of try and puzzle all this out I don't know if there's anything else you want to try and tackle almost I, oh, I, I do want to say thing? I said I said it oh my goodness the end of the previous episode that I was I was annoyed I was annoyed with Donald Makepeace with Bobby Doogood mm-hmm. about uh, sweeping do the rug out one. from under Ellie Cooper and I just wanted to let you know that I, I was uh, right on some level that having gotten to this point in the story, I am satisfied with how Janice Hallett has set it up. So mm. we'll now see how Janice Hallett pays it off mm-hmm. in our last week discussing the book. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we will be discussing, of course, chapters six to, to the end, to the end of days. Although I think there's actually a chapter after the end of days, which is a bit of a weird one, but you know, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> sometimes... There's something after the end of days. There's the return of Jesus. Well, I presume the end of days is the end of Amanda's days and what? someone else is going to take over. Well, it has, the a last question mark. it has a question mark in the chapter name, so maybe it's not. Sure it does. Who knows? Don't read the, the name of the last chapter. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> don't, I mean, actually, go read it now and just, just don't see this. Oh, in- oh, oh. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> Maybe don't read the chapter titles. If don't you're read the chapter read titles, my friends. Don't read the chapter titles. It's a bad idea. Anyway, uh, this this has been Death of the Reader discussing the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels. This has been Flex absolutely ripping this book to shreds with his bare hands and teeth on Tour of Seattle 7.3.